the first of the 95 theses, basically, uh, it was on repentance. And it, and it basically said that the life of the Christian is one of continual, or ought to be one of continual repentance. Um, a lot of times I think we think of repentance as something that's a one-time deal when I walk down the aisle and come to Christ. I repent of trying to live for myself and trying to clean myself up and trying to deal with my sins myself, and I admit that, Jesus, you died for me. Uh, you died to become my sin and to pay the price for it before your just Father and to make me right in his eyes, to give me, not only to take my, my death and my sin that caused death, but to, to give me your life. That is indeed repentance, but it's really just the beginning of a life of repentance is what Luther was saying. And I think that that is one of the things that we see here in Job 42 is that Job's restoration comes out of or emerges from his repentance at the beginning of the chapter that Scott read. So Job 42, we're finishing up a series, um, an eight-week series on Job, and it's, it's been hard because Job's a hard book. I think if it hadn't been hard, we probably wouldn't have preached it right, not that I did, but uh, it's a hard book, and so it ought to have been a hard series, but in the same way, perhaps that a stone is, is hard but, but good because it's real. I think it's been, it's been, it's been good, and uh, it's nice to see some restoration here, I have to admit. At the end of the book, we know that's where we, we, we've always known that's where we're heading, but here we get to, to see it, Job restored, and um, I just want to say that sort of tagline for this, this sermon is repentance is the only road to restoration. We're going to look at repentance reconciliation, and then finally restoration. So let's look at repentance first. It's anatomy and power. Um, If you look at verse 6, if you have a Bible, and if you don't, it should be on the screen. Job says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I want to look at that first line there, therefore I despise or or reject myself, is what the word means there. it's a tough one, I'm not going to lie. It's a, it's, it's a difficult text. What exactly is he saying here? Um, I don't think it's an unhealthy form of masochism, um, an unhealthy self-loathing, but I think instead it's an appropriate response to what Job has just heard, which if you, if you weren't here last Sunday, in short, and this is kind of my tagline, God took Job to the woodshed. Job is a righteous man who's been subjected to incredible suffering because of his righteousness, but as a test as well. Um, not only a test for Job, but to show beings in the heavens that, that this man's faith is real, that it's going to hold. And indeed, it has held as a tribute to Job and his faith it has held. But still, certain bits of pride and other things, um, a bit of a bent theology started to emerge toward the end of Job's um, wrestlings with the Lord. And so God sort of sets him straight and just says, look, here's who I am. Who are you to question me? You, there's so little that you know. Even in this, you're suffering. There's so much that you do not know that's been happening. And Job just says here, look, I shut my mouth. You're right. I repent in dust and ashes. Um, I despise myself. So I, don't, I think it's a healthy sort of self-loathing loathing that, that yields to a life-giving um, effect with Job. Um, and it's brought about by God's hard but good word to Job. You know, we're told in every... This is, I think this is such an appropriate word for us to look at this morning because we're told almost from every corner of our culture, that we're to love ourselves, we're to be our number one champ and cheerleader. Um, We're, you know, the point in life is to seek out our own happiness and self-fulfillment. And the idea of this sort of 
I despise myself just seems incredibly countercultural and unhealthy. Um, but I think one of the things Job shows us is that there are parts of myself that I should hate, parts of my false self, parts of myself that Christ came to put to death, to die for, um, namely the parts filled with arrogance, with self-pity, with disdain. These parts of me, I don't think anybody would argue, these parts of me need to die. And I need to hate them enough to give them to God so he can kill them and crucify them along with his dear son. Um, and only then can the real me that Christ came to cause to live, um, that part of me that's in him, all of me, can live. Um, should I love the part of me that wants to hurt children or lust after women who are not my wife? That's absurd. No. To do that, to love that part of me would actually harm me in the long run. It would harm others and it would offend God. Um, so this sort of self-love actually isn't healthy at all for anybody. Um, to hate what's killing me and harming others is to love myself and others and to love God. And it's the way to find my true self, the person that God created me to be and died for me to be and rose for me to be. Um, there's a great illustration of sort of this aspect of truth, I think, in, here it is, C.S. Lewis's, every week I mention him, just in case you're new, just wait till next week. In his Great Divorce, which is, I think, my wife's favorite uh, of, the, of the books that, Lewis, that she's read that Lewis has written. But The Great Divorce, it's the great divorce, the ultimate divorce is the divorce or the divide between heaven and hell in the next life, in the life that's going to last forever. We're all going to live forever, just in case you're wondering, not just those that go to heaven, not just those that are in Christ and his merit and his life. But everyone, we're all eternal creatures and we're going to spend an eternity apart from God with his bearing his just wrath or with him, having Christ having bit born the wrath of God for us in our place. So Lewis talks about that in not a heavy-handed theological treatise at all, but a story. It's fictional, but it conveys a lot of truth. And it's basically, the plot line is that um, hellions are given the opportunity to take a field trip to heaven. And one of the hellions, and if they decide that they like heaven, they can stay. Most of them hate it, absolutely. And that's one of Lewis's big point, big, big takeaways in the book, but one in particular finds freedom there, and he's a man that is really burdened by this pet sin, and I wouldn't say all of us, but it, all of us at one time have had a pet sin, and a lot of us still do, if we're honest, and there are just certain proclivities that we have in our flesh. I might have a tendency towards sin that's different than Scott or my wife, and so we all struggle with different things. But this guy seems to have, he has some sort of pet sin that's represented by a salamander on his shoulder. And it's this oily, sort of lying, greasy uh, salamander, lizard. And I, and I think it's probably the sin of lust to some degree or another, of concupiscence, as Augustine would call it. Um, but it's just whispering to him as he's sort of taking this field trip through heaven, all these lies about how I'm, I'm what you need, you're addicted to me, but I am, I am you, you are me. And he's very much suggesting that he is this man's identity, that this man's um, being attached to this sin is, is his identity, it's who he is. And so this burning angel in heaven comes along and basically says, look, I can take care of that for you. That's not your life at all. In fact, it's your death. And, but I need your permission. And, and the, the, the lizard starts piping up, and he's whispering in the guy's ear all these lies, and he's just saying, this, that's the, 
that's not true at all. If I go, you go, because I am part of who you are. And, you know, Tolkien, uh, Lewis and Tolkien were friends, and often their, idea, their shared ideas come out in their literature. And so Tolkien has a very similar sort of exchange in his Lord of the Rings. I believe it's Fellowship. It could be Two Towers. Um, but there in Rohan, in the King Theoden of Meduseld, he's, he's the king of, of Rohan, and he's in his hall, and he's wizened, and he's sick. And Gandalf, the wizard, comes in, and he's... he's uh, Theoden is, he's all bent over and possessed, as it were, by this wizard who's turned evil, Saruman. And when Gandalf is trying to deliver him of Saruman's grip, of Saruman's power to free him to live, Saruman basically speaks through Theoden and says, if I go, he goes. And of course, Gandalf doesn't buy into that, and he shoves him against the chair, and he, he basically exercises the spirit of Saruman from Theoden. And Theoden before their eyes, wakes up and just comes to life in his vigor and his strength of old. And so it's, it's the lie, and that's exactly what we see with this salamander. And finally, the man gives permission to the angel, and the angel takes the salamander and crushes him and throws him on the ground and breaks his back. And the salamander grows up into what it was supposed to be, not lust, but true love, a picture of true love, this, this virile, beautiful, graceful white stallion and the man jumps no longer a salamander deceiving him but jumps on the stallion and rides it into the distance up into the far hills and so uh, and the man himself changes as well so it's just this picture of the idea that we are often so deceived by the things that we hold on to that are not God's best for us and it's his hard word often that comes to us and offends our flesh and oftentimes our flesh will and, the, and Satan and, and, his, and his minions and his servants will come to us and will whisper, you know, if you let, let God take this, if you let his word speak to this part of your heart and life, you're, that, that part of you is going to die and you might go too. But that's a lie. That's a lie. And so we see, we see that life, this life comes from Job really rejecting that part of himself that had not humbled himself under the living God, under this very hard word that God gives. Um, if you look at line B there of verse, of verse 6, and I repent in dust and ashes, um, the word is am- ambiguous. It can also mean not only I repent in dust and ashes, but I'm comforted in dust and ashes. Um, the near context, the fact that he says in dust and ashes might lead toward repent. Um, but the, the larger context of the book might lean us toward I'm comforted in, in dust and ashes, which seems kind of ta- counterintuitive. How could you be comforted? In dust and ashes, but his friends actually come to same word comfort him in chapter two, verse eleven, at the beginning of the book. The friends that come to comfort him, but of course we know they've been his thorn in his side the entire book. They never provide him with that comfort. He mentions actually how miserably they fail as comforters in twenty one thirty four, and most famously in sixteen two he says miserable comforters. Same word, are you all? But God has done what the friends came to do but couldn't do. God with his truth. And his severe mercy has come and he's provided true comfort for Job. So there's a fullness of meaning in this word and in this statement, I think, um, in, this, in this ambiguity. Is Job repenting or is he comforted? Yes. There is a certain, um, I think, comfort in repentance. Um, it's ironic because God is, bo- he's just lambasted. He's, act- he's just totally grilled Job. And yet Job says here, in a sense, in repentance, I am comforted. Um, how 
can we explain this? Well, it's kind of intuitive. If you understand repentance, you understand life with God, you sort of feel what Job means here, even though it's, it's um, counterintuitive as well. But the, the best way, as I thought about how to explain this, that I, I think could, could convey maybe what Job is, is trying to say is just through my own childhood experience, um, both what I experienced with my dad and what I experienced as a dad with, with three children, um, there's a certain strange comfort in being disciplined, well-disciplined by your parents, whether it's a spanking or something else. For me, it was most often a spanking. <laughs> um, my dad would always tell me, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, which always irked the heck out of me. Um, I think one time I even, I was a little bit older and sassier, but at one time I, I actually said, well, then let me spank you. <laughs> it's amazing I'm still alive. <laughs> I think he must have been, I don't know, biting his cheeks and trying not to laugh at that, or maybe he was just more ready to spank me. But um, afterwards, we would always... I would resist, of course, and then he would spank me, and I would submit to that hard word, as it were. And afterwards, um, there was always the best hug and the best cry on Dad's shoulder because we always had to hug him, and he would say, look, I love you so much. And, and we try to do the same thing with our kids. Um, and I've experienced that as a father, too, that exact same thing, that when they finally yield, when they finally experience the hard word, as it were, of discipline, there's such a peace and there's such a a reconciliation, and there's a sweetness about that fellowship after that that, that is a result of that repentance, that forced repentance. <laughs> um, and, you know, so it is with God. His hard word to us, which often his word is, it, it speaks to us in places that it pokes us in soft places that we don't want to be poked. It shows us things about ourselves we don't want to see. Um, but... His hard word irks us and riles us as long as we push against it and refuse it. But once we submit to his word and ultimately to his son, Jesus Christ, whose cross says to us consummately, this is how offensive you are to God, that, that cross. And also, this is how loved you are by God, that cross. It's not you on that cross, it's Jesus. It's God himself, his own dear son. Once we submit to that, in other words, once we believe in that, submit to that, embrace that, and say, yeah, you for me, I believe it, I deserve that, I accept that, um, there's a comfort and a peace that come. It's like a hot iron thrust into a wound that cleanses and cauterizes it. I have done wrong. You're right. I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. You love me. I receive that. Thank you. It's enough. Um, so having looked at um, repentance. I want to move on to reconciliation. I thought about labeling this subsec subsection vindication because it's really the bit where Job, you know, after he repents, God says, okay, it's so satisfying. He, he sets the scene straight for the friends. He says, look, you have just really ticked me off. You've spoken absolute folly of me, and I'm furious. But Job has spoken to me what is right. He says that twice. That's like a Hebrew underliner or highlighter. It's the way of saying this is really important. I want to make sure that you understand that Job has spoken to me what is right or solid or steadfast or tried and true, tested. It's, it's that which endures, but you haven't. So finally, Job is vindicated. What we've known all along, um, and his friends are put in their place, 
But do you see what God is doing here? I, I decided to label it not vindication, which it is of Job, but reconciliation. Because what God is doing here is that um, he's dealing with each of the human actors in this play, in this book, in turn. And what he's doing is he's bringing them back to a good place with him. So first he does it with Job through Job's repentance. And then he vindicates Job. But then he doesn't just leave the friends out in the cold. He says, make sacrifices to get right with me again. Do it in Job's presence and have him pray for you because I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to listen to you right now because I'm so furious. You're going to have to have someone to come in between me and you so I don't destroy you and so I can actually hear you. This righteous man, Job, he's going to pray for you because I want to be back in relationship with you. But our relationship, it can't just happen. Not mine and yours, but God's and ours. In this case, God's and the friend's. Payment has to be made for wrongs that have been committed because God is just. Somebody comes, comes into a courtroom of a just judge that's committed a heinous sin. If the judge is a really nice guy, he can't just say, eh, don't worry, you're fine, get out of here. That's not just. God is just. He's kind and loving, but he's just. And so he's making things right between him and Job, between him and the friends, between Job and the friends, if you'll notice. Um, and then comes restoration. So repentance, reconciliation, vertically and horizontally. Then comes restoration. Repentance is the only road to restoration. Um, so God's response starting in verse 7 is surprising to me as I'm reading through the text in at least two ways. First of all, after the tongue lashing again that God just gave to Job, I mean, he just took him to the ultimate woodshed. Um, after that kind of spanking, we, uh, if we read the title of the section as God's further response to those in the wrong, we might expect it to be to Job. But that's not it at all. It's actually to the friends. And, and here is God saying he's vindicating Job. He's supporting Job. Uh, he's encouraging Job. And so that's kind of a surprise, but it's so satisfying. And then secondly... Um, if we accurately title this closing section, Job's Vindication, as I've said, we might expect God to say something to the friends like, you spoke of Job, what was wrong? He suffered because of his righteousness, not his wickedness. You guys have spoken absolute foolishness, and I'm furious with you. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, Job spoke of me what is right. You spoke folly of me and I'm furious. And I think one of the things that this does is it writes me, and it should write us, to set our priorities again in the right place if perhaps they're not there. And I think my priorities, they tend to drift. They tend to get all during the week, and as I'm not in the scriptures, I drift. I just, my natural simple state is just to drift. But this is a great reminder to me that it's ultimately what is said about God and believed about God and thought about God here and here, and here, about God that matters most. Um, this, because <laughs> this is probably the most important thing in the universe, what, to think rightly and to speak rightly about God to ourselves and to the world. Because if we understand God here and here aright, then everything else is going to fall into place. Reconciliation is going to happen. Uh, restoration in its time. So thinking and speaking rightly about God is of utmost importance. One of the things this text tells us, I think, um, 
in just a few sort of brief case studies, we look at, let's take, let's take Muslims, you know, Islam. Um, the fact that uh, they believe that God is one, which is true, we believe the same thing, but they say anathema to the idea that he would come, become a human, take on human flesh, live in our place, live the perfect life that we, can't, that we should live but can't, and die the death that we deserve on the cross. They say, we'll, basically, we'll take everything you believe except for that. We'll take the whole wheel, all the spokes and everything, but the hub of the wheel we're cutting out. Not acceptable. Um, God says, Jesus says in Luke 24, at the end of the book of Luke, at the, toward the end of his time with his disciples, after he's risen from the dead, he basically says, look, all of God's word to all of humanity since the beginning of time, all of his revealed word in the Old Testament scriptures, it's summed up in me. It's pointing to me. And so to think rightly about God in every way, but then to say, yeah, but he wouldn't actually become one of us and die in our place to reconcile us to God. That is, that is the ultimate heresy in Islam. Do you see how, not only how damaging that is to us and to the world, but how hot and angry and furious uh, and sad it would make God, um, who has revealed him, who has gone to the ultimate lengths to reveal himself in this way, and then uh, for a religion to say, no, that can't be true of God. Um, and man, there are so many others that I have here, but to, to bop through them, um, you know, Christians, who ca- they call themselves Christians at least, but who really believe that Christianity is... Um, rather than having a substitute who is God, fully God and fully man, who came to live and die in our place as the center of our faith. Um, really, it's just a list of rules, a list of things to do, moralism. You know, don't drink. Um, I was going to say don't drive. <laughs> don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex before marriage, a few other things, and you're good. Um, no, that's not at all. That's, that's, you can see how that kind of thing it flies directly in the face of what God came to do in the person of Christ Jesus. If that were the way to God, then Jesus never would have had to come. He never would have come. Um, we could see how thinking wrongly in that sense and speaking wrongly in that sense through our actions about who God is could make God furious. Um, okay. So God coming down hard on the friends for not speaking of him, what is right, may at first seem proud or just like an angry irascible, pugnacious God, but actually it's loving. Unless we think rightly of God, we can't be saved. And what God tells us throughout his whole word, he crystallizes his entire, you know, 1,500 years of written scripture through 40 plus different authors. He crystallizes that in the person of Jesus Christ and says, you want to know about me? You want to know who I am? Look at my word. My word is this person, this God man, my own very son, Jesus Christ. Um, Unless we think about God rightly through the person of Jesus Christ as God's ultimate self-expression, we can't be saved. That's the way that God provided for every single person who wants to come to him to come to him. But that's the only way we can come. That's it. If there was another way, he wouldn't have done what he did. Period. So that's uh, repentance. That's reconciliation. And finally, let's look at restoration. The, f- the part about this book that makes it gives us some relief. Let's look at restoration. Um, so 
intercession, God has Job so interestingly, the order in which he has Job intercede for uh, his friends, to plead for them, for their blessing instead of their curse, to, to plead for their being made right with God. Um, so as I've said, first, God makes sure that relationships are restored with him, both with Job and the friends, and then with each other, and then he restores Job. Um, so it's vertical first, and then it's horizontal, and then it's Job's stuff. So it's God and man, man and man, and then you get some stuff back, a lot of stuff back. I, I, I was chuckling, this wasn't part of the text, but I was chuckling when I was, we were reading through, as Scott was reading the text, and it came up on the screen that, um, I'm not going to touch on this last bit very much, but just Job gets all, this, all these camels and donkeys and sheep back. In other words, money in the bank. I mean, that, that was money in the bank back then, these assets. Um, and then he gets more children. And I was just laughing that and he, his relationships restored. Everybody comes to his house and eats out of his fridge. And um, I was, uh, they had fridges back then? I know some of y'all are thinking that. Um, no, I'm kidding, you're not. Um, sorry. I was, I was laughing at the fact that, so Job gets twice, when you look at the numbers, he actually gets double the amount of money of possessions of uh, sheep and, and camels and stuff. But uh, he gets 10 more kids. He lost his children. He lost 10 children. He gets 10 children back. And I was just, my, the laughter was just, yeah, it probably would have been a blessing to have 20 children. You know, like he doubled his possessions, but man, to have, kids are a blessing from the Lord. That's a fact. It's in the scriptures. But 20? I don't know. No, I'm kidding. Hey, for anybody out there with 20 kids, God bless you. Um, if the Duggars are out there or the Duggar, whatever they're, um, man. But yeah, got, got his children, got children back. And the women's beauty, his daughters, his three daughters' beauty is accentuated and expressed in their names, and, and, he, and he gives them an inheritance with their brothers, which is so progressive. Just like we talked weeks ago about Job being progressive in the way that he treated his servants. Equal status. We're all made in God's image. There aren't any variations. That's so progressive. It, it, this is the oldest book written in the Bible. The Bible's way ahead of culture. Um, the Bible has helped create, I would say, all the good things that we enjoy about this post-Judeo-Christian culture. So much inheritance from the scriptures that we take for granted. Um, and this is, this is similar. But either way, um, so God, friends, and relationships, and then stuff, okay? Um, but Job is in this real position of power. As we look at this restoration and this intercession, he's in a real position of power here. Um, Job puts, God puts Job in the place where he, his friends will not be forgiven unless Job goes to bat for them. He's, that's power. These are the friends that have cursed him for days and perhaps weeks on end while he was down. He's down at the lowest place, and they're just, you know, you think of the guy in office space who's on that printer, just bam, bam. And that's like what they're doing to Job, like Job as office space printer. They're just taking him down. First time that illustration's been used, I'm sure. Um, so, so it's delicious for Job in that sense, I would imagine. This position of power, you know. What am I going to do? But also difficult. Um, so again, God puts Job in the place where if he doesn't pray for them, then they're not going to be heard by God. They won't be forgiven. Um, they'll be treated as they deserve according to their folly. Um, so how tempting for him not to intercede for them. How tempting to make them eat crow. To rub it in their faces. Um, but what does God encourage Job to do? None of these things, but instead to pray for them. 
Um, I think this is as much for Job as it is for the friends, guys. Uh, Praying for those, a few just sort of things we can glean from this. Praying for those who have hurt us or wronged us, who have hurt you or wronged you. And as I say this, think of, it won't be hard for you to think of a few people that have really hurt you or wronged you. Praying for them, extending love to them, and trying to see them reconciled to God through the person of Christ. Serving them actually helps heal the wound. Doing the opposite just makes things worse. It's why, it's why books like Romeo and Juliet play or Huckleberry Finn were written. Um, those, these ancient feuds, they never get better. They just get worse. Forgiveness and, and intercession, praying for our enemies, loving them, is the, is the only thing powerful enough to, to undercut that process, to stop that. Um, so it's, this is part of Job's healing. I do truly believe it. It's why it precedes his restoration. Uh, it also reminds us of what God has done for us. When he calls us to pray for our enemies, to love them, it reminds us of the gospel. Because the gospel is that. I was his enemy. I did so much more wrong to God through my words and thoughts and deeds. Because he's so holy than anyone has ever done to me. And when I choose by the grace of God to obey him and to love my enemies and to bless those who have hurt me, I get to taste the gospel a little more sweetly. And it's, the, the gospel penny sinks a little more deeply, existentially, into my heart and mind. Thank you, God. It's a little more sincere. Wonderful. So, um, like I said, it seems to be a key ingredient here in Job's restoration. It's first at a heart level, internal, and then it's relational, and then it's material. Y'all, what a guy. We've we just seen through the whole book, even though he's, he's, he's a sinner like all of us, um, he's a broken human, but what a guy, what a righteous, honest, humble man this is who speaks truth. He lets those eat at his table. If you look at the end that, that Scott read, the end of the chapter, he, he invites them, the people that have just, boof, as Christ was abandoned on the cross, when Job started suffering bad, when everything was taken from him, people were like, accursed, and they just ran. Because we don't want to get too close. As I preached weeks ago, we don't want to get too close to somebody who's been cursed like that. Because, man, because it could, it could get on to us. It could affect us. And maybe I'm blessing someone that God hates, and I'm just going to stay away. It's like a landmine. Um, and so as he's suffering, we know for his righteousness, his friends and his family, his closest, have just bolted. Everyone's gone. Even his wife says, curse God and die. She's like, peaced out. His three best friends have just been taking the bat to him. And what does he do at the end of the book? He lets them in, and he feeds them at his table. Man, they're eating out of his fridge. I mean, what a guy. Um, what a guy. I was just... I was impressed by that. The Proverbs say that a rich man has many friends and a poor has none. Um, who is the one who stuck by Job, the only one? Okay, it's not his three friends because they just, what they did was worse than not coming at all, okay? Um, who is the one who stuck by Job when he lost everything? Well, God. Um, it's ironic because the whole book, the more we go on, the more silent God is, the more Job thinks, you're the one who's abandoned me. But we see here at the end of this book that actually it's God who's proud of him 
It's God who vindicates him. It's God who has Job pray for his friends so that they can be in right standing again with him. Um, God does all these things, not just before the audience of three friends, not just before Job's family and wider circle of friends, but in, on a worldwide stage. Look, we're still talking about Job. Although I would argue even after the sermon series, you're probably not going to go and name your son Job. just doesn't happen. And we know why, because he just got hammered. But what a righteous guy. Um, but it was God who stuck by Job even when Job thought he's nowhere to be found. He's not hearing me at all. In fact, we know Job heard his, God heard his every word because God responded and then God brought Job to a place of restoration, used Job to bring his friends to a place of restoration, and then he restored him and gave him twice what he had before. Not twice the kids, but twice everything else. And then twice the, the normal amount of life, 140 years. He saw his great-great-grandkids lived a full and blessed life after that. Um, and I just want to accentuate the fact that the text is clear. Look at verse 10. God did not the text goes out of its way to say that God did not restore Job until what? After. Until after he prayed for his friends. So if you can think about this, at the time it would have been most difficult to pray for his friends. It might have been a little easier once vindicated, once restored. That's not, that's not how it goes. Um, he, pray that I would not judge those who just spent days kicking you while you were down, who said that your kids got what they deserved, and you got what you deserved. Pray for their blessing while you're naked with sores from head to foot in utter poverty, stripped of all your wealth, void of the good opinion of any man on the face of the planet. Pray for them. Pray for their blessing while you're sitting here stewing in feces and, and having pus all over your body with nothing and with total dishonor and shame. Pray for your friends. And he did. What a picture of Christ Jesus. What a, what a beautiful picture, this righteous man praying for his friends before he was restored, of Christ on the cross, our God who spoke and made us, who, as it were, crafted us from the dust of the earth and breathed his life into us and upholds us by his very breath, having his breath taken from him as he suffocates on the, cro on the Roman cross with one of his last breaths saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know that they're crucifying your only son. Blessing us in the nadir, in the very lowest point of his life, with the wrath of God poured out on him, blessing us. And because of that prayer, because of that prayer, and because he stayed on the cross, we indeed, God the Father heard him and responded, and we look to Christ, are totally reconciled and restored and put in good standing before the Father. Um, I'm going to skip lots of stuff and, 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 and tell you a couple more things and then we're out um, to communion, but just, just camping out for a minute or two on this idea of, of forgiveness um, of forgiving those who have really wronged us. In my own experience, my brief experience as a Christian, as a pastor, I've done a little bit of praying with people who are suffering, doing a little bit of what we call deliverance ministry, where there's just something that's happening that we can't explain, and, 
It could be the flesh. It could be demonic attack. Um, the favored word is not um, uh, demon possession uh, because we always pray for Christians. I've, I've, that's the first step. If, if you want, oh, the first step toward God and toward deliverance is taking a step toward Christ and trusting in him and calling out to him. But even Christians, I mean, we experience these things. We experience struggles. We experience these strongholds. Sometimes it can be because you're like Job, you're fighting the good fight and Satan is just attacking you. Sometimes it can be a sin that you've let something into your life and, and Satan has got a foothold. Sometimes it can be generational. Sometimes it can be a curse. But praying over some folks for deliverance and what we've found, if there's any commonality there, okay, and I've been prayed over, and, and I think that's actually something we should, we should seek on a more regular basis uh, in this body of Christ, but that's, that'll unfold in years to come. Um, one thing I've seen over and over again, and something that's often said, or you'll, get, you'll be in a session with someone, and you'll get to a place where there's just not a lot of deliverance happening, there's not a lot of bonds breaking loose, and, and there's not a lot of breakthrough, and it, sometimes the question is asked, okay, this person... Like, do you, okay, have you forgiven them? Is there anyone in your life that you have not forgiven who's truly wronged you? And oftentimes, if there's no breakthrough, almost always without, without fail, it'll be, yeah, there's this person. Or, yeah, I just can't, I can't forgive, I can't go there. Or, yeah, that, that right there, that unforgiveness for what they really did to wrong you back way back when, or a week ago, or a month ago, because of the gospel, because you've been forgiven by God of everything through no good of your own, you are compelled, my friend, not because they didn't wrong you, but because of what God has done and because he's extended forgiveness to you to forgive and to say, this person doesn't owe me anything. They owe God to bless them, to let that go. And man, the power of forgiveness. If that person refuses to forgive, I am telling you, friends, there is really nothing that can be done for them. I mean, doesn't Jesus say as much when he says in the Lord's Prayer, uh, forgive us our debts, what? As we forgive our debtors. That is amazing. In other words, if we cannot forgive those who've forgiven us and we say we're in Christ, we're probably lying. You can't receive the forgiveness of God and not at some point extend it to others. doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It will be hard. Um, but the power of forgiveness, and when that person is ready to say, I repent, I was wrong, that person wronged me, I forgive them. Man, the breakthrough and the power that's released in that is just tremendous. It's just tremendous. And this, this is what God has done for us. And yet, and yet. So Job prays for his friends while he's still down, those who have cursed him before he's restored, and then he is restored, thank God. Um, they also have to be in his presence and sacrifice. So things have to die in their place. And Job has to basically suffer for them, absorb their hurt and their, and their shame, and bless them for them to be restored. Um, so which that leads us to, you know, they weren't just, the friends didn't just get off scot-free for speaking folly of God. They sinned against him, and it had to be paid for. Innocent animals had to die. Job had to absorb their wrong. Um, God will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, Exodus 34, other places, Payment has to be made for guilt. Um, Soren Kierkegaard said, it is eternally false that guilt is changed by the passage of a century. I'm going to read that again. Kierkegaard said, it's eternally false that guilt is changed by the passage of a century. I think that 
a lot of us, we just have such short memories and we're broken humans in a broken world. And so we tend to think that if enough time passes, we feel better about something egregious that we've done or even maybe a small sin that's offended God. And all sins do, not equally. That God has also forgotten and forget and forgive. No, God, that is not the way forgiveness works. Every offense has to be paid for. God doesn't forget. His holiness won't brook any unpaid for guilt. Either you will pay for it to the nth degree, or Christ has. And you saying, yes, Jesus, yes, believing in him means that it's paid for. Um, and I'll end with this and then a story about Jim, uh, uh, the guy that plays Jim in The Office, and then we'll be out. Um, that's right, end on a high note. Um, you know, there's this strange phrase, if you look at verse 8, it's translated for, I will accept his prayer. God's talking to Job's friends, and he's saying, look, I'm not going to accept your prayer. Job's prayer, I will accept. Well, the phrase in the Hebrew actually reads, for I will accept Job's faces, or face. Okay? What does that mean? It's, it's weird. Why, why does the text say that, and why is it translated, I will accept his prayer? In a sense, what it's talking about is what prayer is talking about, which is relationship. When we pray, we're assuming that we can be heard and that we have some sort of connection to God. Um, a face, when you see someone's face and they see yours, in a sense it's shorthand for you have a relationship, you have a means of communication. What God is saying is I'm not, I don't have any FaceTime with these friends. I can't even look on their faces because I can't look on sin and they've wronged me and they've spoken of what is wrong of me. Job has a relationship with me. He's in the right. He understands my forgiveness. He's walked in righteousness. He's repented. He's in good stead with me. You're not. The idea here that's translated in this text is that someone, if we are to be in right standing before God, if we're to see his face and to have a relationship with him and know him and be known by him, which is life itself, somebody that, that is in good standing with him, that does see his face, has to go to bat for us, has to suffer for us and to pay what we couldn't pay. And in that sense, Job is a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ. Um, from whom, who had perfect relationship with God, and yet he became our sin so that God literally had to hide his face from his own son so that we could be welcomed in, so that God could smile on us as he does if we're in Christ and say, come on in. I rejected my own son so that I could bring you in and accept you fully. I just want to say, if you're a Christian this morning and you're struggling with feeling an assurance of God's love and his tender care for you and his kindness toward you and his delight in you, I just want this text that takes us to Jesus Christ to remind you of the fact that Jesus has done something far more powerful than Job ever did for his friends. He has made you able to stand before God Almighty and to, and to see his face and to be his child, and to be in his lap, as it were, the almighty and perfect and holy Father. You have the standing of Jesus Christ. He has paid for your sin, and he's given you his righteousness. Let that transform and lead you, and lead your feelings, and shape your feelings, regardless of what you feel right now. Know that, and that is truth. Um, because everything that Job was, Jesus was to the nth degree. Um, he interceded for those that rejected, cursed, hated him. Um, 
God put him in a place where he wasn't restored until he blessed those who had cursed him. He was in the ultimate place of delicious power where if he hadn't gone to bat for us and suffered for us, we never would have been saved, and he did. Um, and on and on it goes. So um, he who was rejected and, and cursed for us invites us to dine with him and to be with him and to be loved by him and to come in and have fridge privileges in his house to eat at his table to dine in his father's house and to be with his father and to be with him forever. Um, you know, does this sound familiar? This is the picture that Job leaves us with. No matter how much Job suffered, and he suffered amazingly, incredibly from my perspective, it was righted. He was restored. All was made well. This is such a beautiful picture of what's coming for us. And what has been, what is being in our own families, in our parish families, in our church family, what is, what is being worked out through the life and the work and the death and the resurrection and the reign and the imminent return of Jesus Christ, through you. You know, jars of clay through whom the light and the love of Christ shine. Um, I said I'd close with a story about Jim Krasinski and uh, John Krasinski, the guy who plays Jim in the office. Um, it's a, yeah. So I was actually listening to an interview with him yesterday and he was talking about, so here's a guy who, um, if you don't know what The Office is, it's, I think it ended three years ago. It had this long-running, amazingly successful uh, stint uh, as a show on TV. It was based on a British sitcom, really, really funny, really irreverent. Um, this guy that played the main character, Jim, his name's John Krasinski, and he, Ivy League uh, educated his brother, he, had two, he has two brothers. His brother um, is an orthopedic, no, a neurosurgeon, I think. Um, some sort of amazingly successful surgeon. His other brother is really a, a rich, successful businessman. And then he was the, I think, the youngest and the third. Yeah, he was the young, he's the youngest because at that time when he was still acting before he made his big break right out of, out of Brown University, he, um, he was talking about how my brothers are doing these things. And so he was waiting tables in New York. His last semester at university, he decided because of an, like a fluke acting class that he wanted to go into acting. So um, his parents were very supportive, but like, hey, if this doesn't work out in two and a half years, you should probably try the real world. And so um, he's like, yeah, great idea. So basically, during the middle of that time, before he had his big break, right at the end of that two and a half years, actually, is when he had that big break. He was waiting tables, um, doing little side gigs. He was in a Marshalls commercial, apparently. He said, I was, I was helping my mother in the commercial pick out extremely, uh, su- ex- extremely reasonably priced handbags um, in the commercial. But so he was just, you know, not, not probably using his education like his parents would have wanted. Comparing himself to his brothers, thankful for his parents' support, but really feeling pretty bad. And he said, I had this, the, the interviewer said, did your parents support you during that time? He said, you know what? He said, my dad sat down with me and he said... He told me a story about how he went to Catholic University in D.C., and he played basketball. And he said he would go most days to the Library of Congress to study. And he said, every, he said John, every um, time when I would go in and put my books on the table, before I started studying, I would take the first 20 minutes and just do this. And just stare up at the ceiling, this beautiful ceiling with all these paintings on them. Um, and he said, in other words, I also love art, and that's where you get it from. I love 
you know, I love beauty, and I appreciate it, and it's a worthwhile endeavor. Is basically, I don't know if he exegeted it for him like that, but that's what Jim got. He, he said that was such an encouraging thing and a tender thing for him to say, and it gave me what I needed to keep going. And in fact, a few months later, he got the office audition, and then he got the part, obviously, so that was a breakthrough for him. But it, it's sort of this lowest point, realizing like what he needed was his father's validation, and it meant the world to him. And it, and it changed everything, really. It led him to where he is now. And I just think it's kind of a silly story. It's cool. But what, what relation does this have to the end of Job, to the whole book? I don't know. Validation from a father, vindication by uh, God to Job. I just feel like, man, he was truly validated by his dad. To know in our heart of hearts, you know, what Job knew at the end of this whole thing, which is what we know to the nth degree, because Job was on that side of the cross. We're on this side. To know that the lengths to which God has gone by sending his own son to come as a poor child, to grow up and to live a lonely life of rejection um, by his own people, by the people that he created and spoke into being, to be nailed to a Roman cross, to suffer death and hell for us, and then to rise victorious. To know that to have that kind of validation in your heart and in your head, that that, no matter what I've done, no matter what I've suffered, in the middle of my suffering, to remember that that is God's heart toward me, his heart toward Jesus, who, uh, who suffered everything to get me, to reconcile me, to restore me, to put me in a place where I can see God's face and be loved by him and to share that with the world. That, um, that kind of validation is so far beyond what, John Krasinski got from his dad. And I pray that it could connect us to the story of Job, to the true historical account of this man who suffered intensely in our suffering, in our questioning, to know that regardless of what I'm going through, looking to Jesus and knowing that the smile that God has, the love that God has in his heart toward the person of Jesus Christ is the love that he has for me, the acceptance that he has toward Christ me. The rejection of Christ, it's taken care of. So I'm fully accepted. Um, I pray that that would make a difference in, in our hearts, especially as we suffer, especially as we question. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for this book. Um, it's kind of a crash landing here at the end, but um, you, your word never goes back to you void. It never returns void. And so I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for what you've done in the person of Jesus Christ. I thank you that he is our seal and assurance um, of your love for us, no matter what we are going through. His resurrection as vindication is validation for us. That, uh, you know, these shadowlands are not the end. That we are deeply loved, that you are making us like him, and that a far green country with a swift sunrise awaits, and we shall see you face to face. And, um, so I just thank you for this book. I thank you for Jesus, your word, your perfect word made flesh. And uh, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.